Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. Uh, We looked at Psalm 63 last week and we talked about how God's loving kindness is better to us than our very lives. And as I thought about that phrase, your loving kindness is better than life, and we talked about being satisfied in God alone. We talked about everything that life would bring that we tend to be satisfied in other than God. We talked about what happens if God strips everything away and all we have is Him. Can we truly say with David that His loving kindness, His presence, His mercy, who He is, is more than enough for us to be satisfied? There are so many different trials that we go through, so many different chaotic circumstances. Life is challenging, suffering abounds, difficulties come, confusion comes. We just we struggle sometimes to keep our eyes fixed on the goodness of our Savior. And so I thought it would be good for us to go back to Psalm 23 and remember David's perspective in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death. Psalm 23 is the pearl of the Psalms and the nightingale of the Psalms, as Charles Spurgeon said. And I want to just give you three points for background, for introduction to this psalm. Number one, for introduction's sake, David is the author. David is the author. The superscription says a psalm of David. So we know he's the one who wrote it. He also wrote Psalm 63. So we're going to kind of put those two themes together God's loving kindness is better than life, and we're going to see his loving kindness pursuing us throughout our lives. David wrote it, um, and he also wrote in a very amazing collection, Psalm 22, 23, and 24. Point number two, just for introduction's sake, Psalm 23 fits in the middle of a trilogy of psalms. Psalm 23 fits in the middle between Psalm 22, 23, 24. It fits right there in the middle. And that would be obvious to us, but the psalms don't really have a context to them. You can just kind of pull out a psalm and you'll see the majority of the psalms are just standalone. But this psalm fits in the middle between 22 and 24. 22 is all about the suffering servant. Some of the verses in Psalm 22 were um, quoted by Jesus when he was on the cross. It's all about the cross. It's all about the suffering servant. Psalm 23 is all about the providing shepherd, that Jesus is our shepherd. And then Psalm 24 is about the reigning sovereign, our God who reigns supreme. You could kind of put three C's next to each psalm. Psalm 22 is about the cross. Psalm 23 is about the crook, the shepherd's crook. And Psalm 24 is about the crown, the crown of glory that is God's right now, that he reigns supreme over all. The third Um, point of introduction. We have David writing this psalm. We have this psalm just kind of fitting in the middle of a trilogy. But the third point, just for introduction's sake, is that this psalm, when we think of it, and it is the most familiar psalm of all the psalms. Uh, Non-believers know this psalm. This psalm is quoted by so many different people. Um, Non-believer funerals, uh, how many countless thousands upon thousands of soldiers have had this psalm Uh, read even as they are dying and preparing to enter into eternity. This is a very well-known psalm. But a lot of people think of this psalm for the green pastures in verse 2, for the quiet waters in verse 2, for the restoration of our souls. Yes, there is the valley of the shadow of death. Yes, there are enemies. But a lot of people think of this psalm as being a, a happier psalm, a psalm with a tone of more just happiness. 
And I think, um, because of the grammar that's used in this, and we'll, we'll look at it together, but I think just point number three for introduction's sake, this psalm is more about the valleys, the hard times, than it is about the green pastures. And I think I can prove that to you because in, in this psalm, David addresses God as he. So you see verse 1, Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Verse 2, he makes me lie down. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me. These are things that he does, and I know that he does them because these are things that he has done for me. These are things that God has done for me in the past. He does these. But then verse 4, there's a shift from the third person of he to the second person of you. Even though I walk, and literally it's I am walking through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me right now. Why the shift? Why the change from he does this, he does this, he does this? Why doesn't David just say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for he is with me. Because I believe that he is currently walking through that valley, through the valley of the shadow of death. God is with him in that moment. He's writing in verse 4. That's where he is. He's writing in verses 4 and 5, and then verse 6, he moves to the future. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. We're going to take that as our outline. We're going to take as our outline this morning just past, present, and future, even though there are a myriad of ways you could dissect this psalm. We're going to take it past, present, and future, verses 1 through 3, looking at the past, verses 4 and 5, looking at the present, verse 6, looking at the future. But the bottom line is I believe that this passage is written in the valley of the shadow of death, and it is written about someone going through suffering, going through a trial, going through a difficult time, and seeing a perspective that may be different than what we would normally be seeing. You remember when we first started the church plant, Philippians chapter 1, we studied through the, the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, says this, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And that word granted is literally the word gifted. God has given us a box that's wrapped up in the most beautiful birthday present, Christmas present, wrapping paper you can think of. And as you dive into it, as you open it up, this present, this gift that God has given to you, Paul says inside of this gift box is suffering. It's been given to you as a gift to suffer. Why is it a gift? How is that possibly a good thing? I would just encourage you, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Just write it down. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Peter answers that question for us. How can suffering be a gift? Because it produces in us something that would not be there if suffering weren't present. It produces in us a glory that is incomprehensible. And I believe that's what David is seeing, David is knowing, David is trusting in the midst of this psalm. So let's look at the past, let's look at the present, and let's look at the future in David's perspective, from his perspective together this morning. Let me read this and then we'll dive in. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me. Beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. 
He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and Your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, as we turn our attention to your word, I pray that you would be pleased to work in us, to give us a heart that would be able to see with spiritual eyes the perspective that David has in the midst of his suffering. God, I don't know everything that each soul in this room is going through, but I do know this. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I know that we all struggle with varying degrees of trials, of trouble, of tribulation, of suffering, of things that just aren't going our way. It can be something very simple, very easy, that will be done even just this day. It will finish, it will culminate, and we can move on. And for some in this room, it will be something that they have to deal with until their dying day, and it's not a simple, easy thing. God, I pray that your people would be encouraged this morning to stare at their great shepherd. Jesus, you are worthy of our affections. And I pray that we would be reminded yet again this morning of how amazing your care for us truly is in the good times and in the bad. May we trust you. Open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law this morning. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Point number one, looking in the past, if you, if you are going to have a perspective that David has in the midst of the deepest darkness, the valley of the shadow of death, number one, you have to remember the shepherd's provision in your past. You have to remember the shepherd's provision in your past. David starts by writing, the Lord is my shepherd. There's no question about that. The Lord is my shepherd. He is the one who leads me. And the question for us this morning, right off the bat, is, is the Lord your shepherd? Are you following him or are you trying to navigate your own path? Are you trying to find your own way? David says, no, I am following my great shepherd. And if God is our shepherd, then we are his sheep. And as one pastor says, when the Bible calls Christ the great shepherd and calls us his sheep, it is a very important and well-meant spiritual insult. When we are called sheep, it is a very important and well-meant spiritual insult. There is a shepherd, a literal shepherd, who became a theologian. He became a pastor, a theologian. He wrote a commentary on Psalm 23, and he says this, A sheep is a stupid animal. It loses its direction continually in a way that a cat or a dog never does. And even when you find lost sheep, the lost sheep brushes to and fro and will not follow you home. So when you find it, you must seize it, throw it to the ground, tie its two front legs and its two hind legs together, throw it over your shoulder, and carry it home. When the Bible calls Christ our great shepherd and calls us his sheep, 
The Bible is telling something about ourselves. The Bible is telling us that we are stupid. That's a word that we cannot say in my household, around my children. That is our uh, S word. You're not allowed to say stupid. But the Bible says we're stupid, okay? So this, this chapter tells us if you are going to follow Jesus, you must admit two things. Number one, you must admit you need to be rescued constantly. Every second of every day, you must be rescued by your great shepherd. You have no way to figure out on your own which way to go. And you're constantly running into troubles and trials. Just like we learned this morning, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We need to be rescued constantly. And we need to be taken care of thoroughly if we are sheep. Sheep cannot find food on their own. In fact, when they look for food, if they find anything that resembles a blade of grass, they will try chewing it. And it doesn't matter where it is. If there is one single blade of grass that's sticking out of the side of a cliff, they'll look at it and they'll say, hmm, looks like dinner. They'll try to go for it. They'll fall off the cliff to their death. Sheep are stupid animals. And David says, I'm a sheep. And Jesus is my shepherd. He's my only hope. And because he controls, because he guides, because he leads, and because he is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, this is a difficult translation of that Hebrew phrase. Uh, it's left in the Old English. That's kind of the Old Englishy way. I shall not want. And it kind of seems like we don't have any desires. If God is our shepherd, we don't want anything. That's not really what it means. If you could translate it in, in our common vernacular, it would be this. There is nothing that I need that I don't have. There's nothing that I need that I don't have because Jesus is my shepherd. Do we have wants? Absolutely. All of us have desires. All of us have wants. All of us have things that we are looking for and we don't have. But what David is saying is those wants and those desires, those aren't necessities. My necessities are met in Jesus Christ, because he is my shepherd. He is my shepherd. The implications of this statement are huge. The Lord is my shepherd, so David is really saying two things when he says, I shall not want. He's saying, number one, in God alone, I have everything I need. That's really what he said in Psalm 63, right? In God alone, I have everything I, I need. Take everything else away. Your loving kindness is better than it all. And then secondly, what flows from Christ being our shepherd gives us great satisfaction. Christ and all of his blessings. Again, we looked at this uh, in Family Bible Hour. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing your praise. Streams of mercies never ceasing. There Blessings that flow. Ephesians chapter 1 talks about those blessings that just continually flow from Christ being our leader, being our shepherd. Matthew 6 says, Seek first the kingdom of God, and everything else will be added to you. If God is your shepherd, then you have everything you need. That's what we looked at last week in Psalm 63, and David is saying it yet again. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What does he do? How does he provide? Verse 2, He makes me lie down in green pastures. So he provides sustenance. God being our shepherd provides sustenance. 
He makes the sheep lie down in green pastures. So, number one, he's not leading us to brown pastures. Um, Sheep would be fine eating whatever is placed in front of them, but God says, I'm going to take you to the choicest food. I have the best option for you, and it is green pastures. And then secondly, he makes the sheep to lie down, and that would be not just offering sustenance, but offering protection um, because sheep are always really afraid. They're always scared and timid. And so they don't want to just lie down and eat because they're afraid there might be a wolf, there might be something around me, and I've got to move, I've got to run, I've got to keep going. But the shepherd says, no, you can lay down. Kind of takes the shepherd's staff and kind of knocks the knees, bends them forward, says, here, just lay down, you're fine, rest. Here's food, here's my provision to you and my protection for you. I will take care of you. He also leads the psalmist beside quiet waters. Now, the the Hebrew there is very clear. It's actually, he leads me beside quieted waters, stilled waters. Maybe your translation says he leads me beside still waters. Quieted. They have been made still. Meaning what? This was once a, a rushing torrent of a river. This was raging. And again, you have one, uh, one or two types of sheep that would deal with a raging river. They would look at it and they would say, I need water. But type number one would say, I'm too afraid to go there. That's 99% of the sheep. I'm too afraid to go there. Looks like it's going to carry me away. I'm just not going to drink water. Type two would say, I'm gutsy enough to try it out. And as they go and they wade into this river, they're swept away. The water gets all up in their wool. It's so heavy that it drowns them as they're swept away. Either way, you're not able to drink water as a sheep unless your shepherd takes you to a little stream that won't scare you and won't take you away. Or if there is no such stream, the shepherd has to do work. The shepherd has to go to this raging river and pick up rocks and set up a dam and make it so that now you have a quiet place to drink. That's what Jesus has done for us. That's what Jesus constantly does for us. He quiets the waters so that we can drink freely from who he is and what he has done. Sovereign grace is found in these verses. God is the one that makes us to lie down and makes us to eat. God is the one that makes the waters quiet enough for us to be able to drink. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Thirdly, verse 3, he restores my soul. He restores my soul. This can really mean one of two things. Whenever you see that word restores in, uh, in your Old Testament in the Hebrew, it can either mean salvation, saving your soul, which God does, or it can be refreshing. You could put there, he refreshes my soul. And I really think that it could be both. I don't think we really have to land on one. God absolutely saves us. He saves us through feeding us his word. He saves us through nourishing us with the fountain of living water. He saves our souls. He restores our souls. But he doesn't just save us and then leave us to our own devices. He saves us and then he refreshes us constantly. That is what our God does. And he guides us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Paths, ruts. Um, it's, it's a well-worn rut that God says, come back to this time and time again. The paths of righteousness that God has given to us, found in his word. 
Uh, The psalmist in Psalm 1 says that his way is in the law of the Lord. That's what he delights in. That's the one who is blessed. So the psalmist says, my God is my shepherd. He gives me everything I need. He provides for me. He protects me. He offers me salvation and refreshment of my soul. And he guides me. He leads me. He establishes the way for me to walk and I follow after him. Then you'll remember the uh, illustration in our men's Bible study um, about a year ago with Tim Whitmer um, going on an Israel trip, seeing all of the flocks of sheep. You remember this shepherd leader at home? We read this last year. And Tim Whitmer said he was trying to make the point that shepherds always lead their sheep. They're not behind them driving them. They're showing them where to go and they're leading them. And he talks about this trip that he went to in Israel. And when you go to Israel, you'll see just herds and flocks of sheep everywhere. And there's a shepherd that's walking in front of these sheep. And and the tour guide is constantly making his point, just as Jesus is our shepherd leading us, so too you'll never see a herd of sheep. You'll never see them hanging out together with their shepherd driving behind them. Constantly making this point over and over and over again. And then one day as they're driving along, they see a bunch of sheep just hanging out and somebody behind them driving them, walking behind them. And that guy, you know, on the bus says, you're wrong, you're wrong, look, there's somebody driving the, the sheep. And, and the tour guide's just flabbergasted. Oh, I, I am wrong. Stop the bus, gets out of the bus, goes and talks to this man, comes back, starts walking back with a smile on his face. And he walks and he goes, oh, <laughs> that's not the shepherd. That's the butcher <laughs> following behind the sheep getting ready to pick who he wants for dinner that night. God is our shepherd and he leads us. He guides us in paths of righteousness that he has cut for us. They're already there. We don't have to find them. We're not left to our own devices. Um, Just like Hebrews 12 says, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. He started it, he finished it, and he says, here's a road for you to run. I've paved the way. I'm the pioneer. Just follow behind me. This verse reminds me of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that God has ordained good works for us to walk in beforehand. Even before we do any good works, He has ordained those works. He has given us a rut, a path of righteousness, all for His glory, and yes, for our good as well. That's all remembering. Remember, that's what we looked at in Psalm 63. The psalmist remembered God and his power and his glory and his loving kindness. Verses 1 through 3 are all about remembering the provision of the shepherd in your past. And we talked about that this morning in Family Bible Hour. 1 Samuel chapter 7. 1 Samuel 7, they raise an Ebenezer. The Israelites raise an Ebenezer after the ark has come back from the Philistines. A huge, joyous celebration And they say, we need to remember. And that word Ebenezer just literally means until now, God has taken care of us. Until now, God has provided for us. Until now, he has been with us. Look at what he's done in the past. Look at how he has helped us. Look at what he has done for us. So my question to you this morning, we talked a little bit about this last week, but my question to you this morning is, how do you practically raise Ebenezers in your life? Um... I don't want to see anybody, you know, setting up a pile of rocks out on the grass after church. That's not the application of this. The application is journaling, 
Do you journal? Uh, we, one of the beautiful things about the email uh, prayer request list that we have is we can see how things are being answered. We're praying for these things. We're praying, we're praying, we're praying. We get updates like we got from the Turners this morning. We hear God working. And we can raise an Ebenezer, even in an electronic PDF. That's an Ebenezer that's being raised because we see God is alive, God is well, God is working for his people. Do you remember your God's work in your life? Or do you take it for granted? If you do take it for granted, you're going to struggle when you are in verses 4 and 5 to have the perspective that David has. Just write down Psalm 105, 5 through 24. Psalm 105, verses 5 through 24. The psalmist talks about remembering God's work corporately, together. And that's what we do on Sunday mornings. That's what we did when we were singing. And can it be that I should gain uh, uh, an interest in my Savior's blood? We, We are remembering together the gospel. Every Sunday we gather, we are remembering the gospel. We are worthy of God's wrath because of our sin Jesus came, lived the sinless life that you and I could never live, but we needed to live to get to heaven. Jesus lived that life, and then he died the death that you and I deserve for our sin, and then he rose from the dead, and he offers us his righteousness by grace through faith alone. We need to remember these things corporately. But also, Psalm 103, verses 1 through 5 Um, You guys know that. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. He pardons all of our iniquities. He uh, is the father to the orphan. All those different ways in which God has worked in your life. Psalm 103, 1 through 5, you need to remember privately, on your own, in your quiet times, in your devotions. We need to remember corporately and privately. And the reality is, David is writing all of these things about what God has done and who God is pre-cross. If there's ever been an Ebenezer that's been raised that we can stare at, it's the cross. God raised an Ebenezer on his own. It is the cross of Christ. Therefore, we know God is for us and not against us. And if our God is for us, then no one can be against us and nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you celebrate the victories of God in the past? It's one of the things that I want to do when we gather together for our business meetings coming up in August, I want to celebrate what God has done this last year. And He has done so much. It's so easy to look at the things that aren't going the way we wish they would go, that aren't happening the way that we want them to happen, and we lose sight of all of the things that God has done this last year for us and for His glory. Number two, if you are going to have the perspective that David has, You have to, number one, remember God's provision as your good shepherd in the past. But number two, you need to trust the shepherd's provision in your present trials. Trust the shepherd's provision in your present trials. This is verses four and five. Even though I am walking, literally I am walking, I am going right now through the valley of the shadow of death. That could just literally be translated valley of deepest darkness. It's a, it's a Hebrew idiom. It's just a word play to try and say, this is the worst time of my life. Maybe some of you have been there and are out. Maybe some of you have yet to go there, but will. And maybe some of you are in the valley of deepest darkness, even as we speak. David says, I'm there right now. That's his present situation. I am currently in the valley 
of deepest darkness. I can't see anything. can't even see my hand in front of my face. I don't know if anybody's with me. I don't know who's going to attack me. If I can just be honest here, maybe Tim will have to take away one of my man cards, but when it's super dark, no moon out, can't see, and I walk to the trash can at night, I walk just a little bit more briskly than I do during the noonday. And David says, I will fear no evil in the midst of the valley of deepest darkness. If I fear a tiny bit of evil, walking to my trash can, taking the trash out at midnight, and David says, I can't, I can't see anything, but I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. Why? Why, David? Isn't there a lot around you that could be terrifying? Sure. But you know the answer. You know the verse. I fear no evil because you are with me. I can't see you. This is what you have to hear David saying. Can't see you because I'm in the valley of deepest darkness. It's pitch black. I cannot see you, but I know you're there. I cannot feel you, but I know you're there. I cannot hear you, but I know you're there. I know that you're there. And you comfort me with who you are and what you promise to do. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod is a little stick. It's like a little club that a shepherd will kind of hang on his belt. And he uses it primarily for two things. Number one, to, to um, fight off any wolves or any uh, animals that will be coming to try and attack the sheep. Or he can also use it to discipline the sheep. If the sheep's going after something that he's not supposed to go after, just a little bop on the nose, sheep won't do that for a very long time. And David says, that is what comforts me. If I'm in the midst of deepest darkness because of the enemies around me, I'm comforted because you've got my back. If I'm in the midst of deepest darkness because of my sin and because of what I've done, I know that you've got my back because you'll discipline me out of it. Whatever it is, David is saying, you will comfort me with your rod and you will comfort me with your staff. This is what you would think of when you think of a shepherd. You know, the shepherd's crook. Um, you can uh, ward off enemies. You can um, poke at them. You can also help the sheep. If the sheep is stuck, you can stick the crook around their bellies and pull them out, the, the hook part. There are so many different uses for the staff, and David says, I have you, and I have what you can do. I have your provisions for me, and so I'm not going to fear. I, I have nothing to fear. And what I love so much about this verse is what follows in verse 5. He doesn't say, I have nothing to fear because I know I'm free. I know some, there's nobody around me. He says, I have nothing to fear, even though I have everything around me to fear. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So he could take that rod and he could destroy all the enemies around David. But David says, you're going to let them live. You're going to leave them around me. They're going to stare at me. They're going to wait for me. But you are going to provide for my needs. You are going to give me a feast in the presence of my enemies. You're not going to take away the enemies and, and all the difficulties. You are going to sustain me through them. You have anointed my head with oil. You've anointed my head with oil. It sounds kind of strange to us. Um, you think about like a scab 
that a sheep might have. You put a little oil in that. It's dry. It's cracked. You put a little oil in that. Soothes it. It soothes it. Helps it heal. Um, oil was also used for sheep, particularly a, a lot of like lice and parasites would get on them. And if you coat the the sheep in oil, you suffocate those parasites. David is recounting all of the ways in which God provides in the midst of trials, in the midst of these tribulations. And he sums it all up by saying, my cup overflows. That's, that's what he said last week with Psalm 63. I'm in the desert, I have no water, and my thirst is only for God. It's not for water. My heart yearns only for God. It's not for water. Same thing here. My cup is overflowing. Why? Because everything that God is for me in Jesus Christ, I have. Though all around me is going terrible, God is my sustenance. My cup overflows. James Montgomery Boyce says it this way, We are never so conscious of the presence of God as when we pass through life's valleys. And it is important to note that the valley of the shadow of death is as much God's right path for us as the green pastures which lie beside quieted waters. That is, the Christian life is not always tranquil, nor, as we say, a mountaintop experience. God gives us valleys also. And it is in the valleys with their trials and dangers that we develop character. We talked about that last week. Wilderness theology, right? Uh, Moses before Pharaoh, Moses and Aaron, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. I'm going to strip everything away from them so that all they have is me and then they will ascribe worth to me because they will see I am worthy of all their worship. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord your God has blessed you in all that you have done. He has known your wanderings. This is right as the people of Israel are about to enter into the promised land. They've been wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. He says, He has known your wanderings through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord God has been with you. It didn't, didn't really feel like he was with us. We're just wandering. We don't know where we are. No, he was with you. And you have not lacked a thing. I love that verse. You've been in the wilderness and you have lacked nothing. Excuse me. I can write a list of what we're lacking here in the wilderness. We're lacking shade. We're lacking um, peace and comfort. We're, we're lacking direction. We're just keep going in circles. Looks like we've passed that rock seven times today. We just keep moving around. We have a lot that we're lacking, and God says, no, you haven't lacked anything. You need water, I'll give it to you from a rock. You need meat, I'll just throw birds from the air and give them to you. You need bread, I'll give you manna. I will take care of you. You haven't lacked a thing. It's exactly what David says. I shall not want, because God is my shepherd. He's taken care of me in the past, so I'm going to trust him in the present because of his faithfulness to me in the past. He is trustworthy. He's proven himself trustworthy time and time again. So I'm going to trust him now in the present. I'm going to trust him. So if you want to have a perspective like David in the midst of verses 4 and 5, you need to remember your shepherd's provision for you in the past, the way he's taken care of you. You need to remember and trust his provision even now in the midst of that valley of deepest darkness. And finally, number three, verses five and six, or verse six, you need to rest assured in the shepherd's provision in the future. You need to rest assured in the shepherd's provision in your future. 
this is, if we can say it this way, this is biblical optimism. This is confidence that what God has promised to do, He will do. That because of what He has done, we can bank on His character in the future. No matter how hard it gets, God's love is going to chase me down. Verse 6, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. Goodness, um, it's that word tov. Some of you know, the, uh, those of you who have gone to Israel know the, um, the greeting in the morning to say good morning, boker tov. Tov, goodness, everything that's good, everything that's beautiful, everything that's a blessing is goodness. And then loving kindness, you know that word, hesed. We looked at that in Psalm 63. Your loving kindness, your hesed love is better than life itself. And we defined hesed as when the person from whom I should expect nothing, I'm not going to get anything from him, gives me everything. I have no right to get anything from God and he lavishes everything to me and upon me. That's hesed love. And David says, surely God's goodness and God's hesed love will follow me all the days of my life. That word follow, it's interesting when words can be, become so powerful and beautiful to you. That word follow has an amazing memory in my mind. For me personally, I was in seminary, I was going through Hebrew, I was learning the Hebrew language, and um, I'm not bright by any means, and so I was really struggling to pick up the biblical languages. And uh, I got to this psalm, I had to translate this whole psalm, and it was just, it was right in the moment when you're just ready to give up. You're just, I'm not getting this. This doesn't make sense. Why do I need this? I can read English. My Bible's in English. Who needs this? I was really struggling. And I got to this verse. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me. And I remember studying that word follow. And it's like the, the Bible just opened up to me. I always used to read that word follow as just kind of trot along behind me. Like I'm moving in a direction and goodness, God's goodness and God's mercy are just bouncing along like a happy little dog behind me. Just, you know, every once in a while we'll stop and sniff the roses and I have to say, come on, come on, keep up, keep up. That word follow is used in other places in the Old Testament. Uh, pursue, it's even used in one place as persecute, hunt, or chase down. So this isn't a little happy puppy following you around stopping to smell the roses. This is like a Doberman pincher chasing you down when you have like big T-bone stakes in your shirt and in your, in your socks running from this dog. God's loving kindness, God's goodness, as it were, have a nose where they can pinpoint where you are and they will hunt you down and find you. It was when I saw that studying Hebrew, that I, I recognize, you know what, this is awesome. I totally have a new insight about my God's character. I thought, yeah, God's got to hang with me because I am one of his followers. And then I read this and I, I saw, no, no, it's not that God's hanging out with me. It's that he's chasing me down. He will find me. Even if I'm in the midst of the valley of deepest darkness and no one else can see me, he's going to find me. And he will lavish his love and his goodness upon me all the days of my life. There will be not one day that goes by in your life, if you are a believer, not one day will go by that God's goodness and God's loving kindness are not being propelled towards you and will hit you like a bullseye, just smack dab on you. God will chase you down with his love.
And because of that, we know that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This could be returning to the tabernacle. This could be residing in the temple. More than likely, this has a near-far thought behind it. In the, near, in the near moment, I'm struggling to praise the Lord, but I'm going to go back and praise the Lord in His tabernacle. I'm going to go back into His presence, uh, kind of like a Psalm 42. Um, hope in God, I shall yet again praise the Lord, the God of my salvation. Maybe in the middle of the valley of deepest darkness, David is saying, I'm struggling to praise God. I'm struggling to actually um, verbalize that I love Him and that I know that He's good. I don't know if you guys have been there before. As you're walking into church, you're kind of wondering, why am I even here? Uh, Do I truly believe that God is good? I'm in the valley of deepest darkness. Is he even with me? And David is saying, I know that while I'm here in this trial, there will be a day that I will return to the house of the Lord and I will be there. I will praise him forever. I think there's a far aspect, obviously, that we all get to enjoy, that we will dwell in God's house eternally forever. The reality is, David says, I know in the present that you will take care of me because I know you have done that in the past, no matter what's happened, and I know in the future you're going to do it as well. David has biblical optimism. And my question for us as a church is, are we biblically optimistic? Are we biblically optimistic? The average person has three negative thoughts for every one positive thought that they think. And if you're actually expressing these things with your families, it goes up. Nine out of ten statements with family members are critical or negative, as opposed to positive and optimistic. You guys remember Fanny Crosby, the hymn writer? She was blinded in childhood by an incompetent doctor. Um, She died in 1915, but not before leaving us over 9,000 hymns that are so richly, biblically optimistic. Listen to just one that she penned. Oh, what a happy soul am I, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. Although I can't see, I resolve in my soul I will be content. Many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. That's backwards. It should be the other way. Everybody else can see, but I can't. And she writes, no, no, I enjoy many blessings that no one else enjoys. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. She was 12 years old when she wrote that. Talk about biblical optimism, trusting in the goodness of her God. The Lord is your shepherd if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. His loving kindness is better than life, and you can trust him all the days of your life. Turn to Revelation 7. We'll end here. Revelation chapter 7. Verse 16. This is dealing with um, 144,000 coming out of the tribulation, but I think this can deal with all of us one day in heaven. Verse 16. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. Why? Because the shepherd, no, the lamb, in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
the beauty of our Savior is that He is a shepherd and the great shepherd became a sheep. He became just like us in every way except for sin so that He could be our perfect substitute. He came, He lived the perfect life that we could never live. He died the death that you and I deserve. He rose to newness of life, the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. He is the one that we worship. He is our great shepherd because He is our great Lamb. And the song that we will sing forevermore that's in Revelation 4 is, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Yes, He is our shepherd and our leader, and He led by coming to earth, by becoming a Lamb, by dying in our place. And the reality is there will be a day when He will guide us to springs of the water of life, just like He guides us in paths of righteousness. And He will wipe away every tear from your eye. Brothers and sisters, I don't know when the last time a tear came from your eye. But the reality is God will wipe it away. The psalmist says that God holds every single tear that we cry in a bottle. He knows every single tear that you cry. And one day when we see Him face to face, it will be worth it all. It'll be obvious to say, yes, you are worthy. You are trustworthy. You are good. You are our God. You are our Lamb. You are our Shepherd. Can you say with David, the Lord is my shepherd? And can you say with David, because he is my shepherd, there is nothing that I need that I don't have in him. God, we pray that you would work in our church. God, there are so many different things that are going on, even right now, even as we speak, even in the midst of the service, through our minds, through our hearts. There are so many different um, anxieties that we might be wrestling through. Again, maybe some of us are in that valley of deepest darkness. Maybe some of us are about to be there. We're approaching it. We can see it. Maybe some of us, it's in our rearview mirror and we're so thankful that we're out of it. God, through it all, we can trust you. And I pray that we would, as a, a body, trust in your kindness and your goodness, your loving kindness towards us. God, it's so easy to look around, even when we're in the valley of deepest darkness and we can't see around us, we still think, maybe if I look around close enough and take my eyes off of Jesus just for a little bit, I can see what I need to focus on, get rid of it, and then keep looking at Jesus. Kind of like what Peter did when he was walking on the water and then took his eyes off of Christ. God, we don't want to do that. We've done it so many times before, and it never worked. So in the valley of deepest darkness, we pray that you would be our vision. Nothing else around us would gleam enough to catch our eyes. We'd stare at Christ, our good shepherd, our lamb, and at him alone. Make that happen in our midst this day as we sing, as we pray to you through song. Pray it in your name.